Hear now the word of God from Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and we'll be reading through verse 8. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it as we hear it this morning. When Dana and I lived in Jackson, Mississippi, we got to visit a traveling exhibit that came to town called the Splendors of Versailles. Uh, it was an exhibit that displayed some of the luxurious items belonging to King Louis XIV and the fabulous uh, Palace Versailles uh, that he uh, altered many times over his long reign. Maybe you've had the opportunity to, to visit um, that splendid palace outside of Paris, most famously known for its Hall of Mirrors and its uh, enormous um, ornately arranged gardens. But just the small exhibit that Dana and I uh, attended that uh, summer in Mississippi uh, gave a taste of the message that uh, Louis XIV intended to communicate through uh, this palace, that he himself was a great monarch possessed of splendid things. Louis XIV was arguably the most powerful and important figure of his day. That's probably what he would have told you. Um, from his boyhood, he spent his entire 72-year reign trying to increase his personal power and prestige. Uh, historians often refer to him as the Sun King, capturing that splendor he presented. But he himself preferred the title Le Grand Monarque and made people call him that. He pursued power and personal exaltation, spending money lavishly to demonstrate his grandeur, to amass armies, to extend his, his um, control over much of Europe. And we can see that grandeur by those splendors of the Palace of Versailles and its rich ornamentation. Even in his death, Louis XIV wanted to have one last display of his greatness. A horse-drawn casket brought his, or horse-drawn carriage brought his golden casket 
into the royal cathedral that was filled with all the princes and nobles and high officials who had come for one last time to bow the knee at the, uh, at the casket of a man to whom they bowed so many times during his life. Louis had instructed that the only light in the cathedral be a single candle placed upon his casket, signifying that he was the splendid light in an otherwise dark world. Finally, it came time for his funeral ordination, and all ears waited expectedly for the grand monarch to be praised for a last time. The renowned French preacher Jean Baptiste Massillon stood and approached the casket. After a long and awkward pause, he reached over, snuffed out the candle, and in the darkness began his sermon by loudly proclaiming, Du soleil grand, God only is great. That declaration, God only is great, is the same message that God gives Moses in the beginning of uh, Exodus chapter 6. Now chapter 6, as you see, begins with a conjunction. Um, it's referring to things that have come before, and chapter 6 begins with a Moses despondent after his first meeting with the Egyptian pharaoh, another man who covered himself with magnificent splendor and stubbornly pursued greatness and power. In denying Moses' modest request to let the people uh, go worship Yahweh in the wilderness for a few days, Pharaoh arrogantly proclaimed, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Furthermore, far from acquiescing, acquiescing to Moses' request, Pharaoh enacted even harsher treatment of the Lord's enslaved people, commanding the Israelites to make the same quota of bricks, but now having to glean the straw required for those bricks themselves, thus increasing their, um, their, their um, labors um, while not decreasing the expectation for their productivity. In response, the people of Israel were ready to kill Moses, who had not brought them their long-expected and hoped-for deliverance, but only greater pain and suffering. Chapter 5 ends with Moses himself despairing, complaining to God, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. In response to Pharaoh's arrogance, the people's trouble, and Moses' gloom, God's message to Moses and to us as we begin this new year is this. Know that only God is great. We first see God's greatness in this passage in his power. Know that only God is great in his power. In verse 1, God foretells the circumstances in which Israel will be released from its captivity. Israel would not just be freed, but Pharaoh would be brought low in the process. Notice the twice-repeated phrase, under a strong hand, that 
captures the imagery of the original Hebrew. Some of your translations might read something like, under compulsion. It's by God's strong hand that forces Pharaoh's seemingly strong hand to set Israel free. The man who verse, or in chapter 5 emphatically declared, I will not let this people go, is going to drive them out, we're told. The exodus is not just the deliverance of Israel. It's the visible demonstration of God's power over Pharaoh and all human power. Pharaoh's not going to release Israel just because he's had a change of heart, or like the Grinch, his heart grew three sizes that day. No, he's doing it because he's being compelled to by the powerful God over him. People have often wondered, why did God not just instantly set Israel free? Why this elaborate uh, repetition of of Pharaoh hardening his heart and God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Why is there encounter after encounter between Moses and Pharaoh in the coming chapters? Why do there have to be ten plagues that destroyed the prosperity and population of Egypt? Why did Pharaoh send his army after the Hebrews only to have it destroyed in the Red Sea? It's so that God's sole supreme greatness be made known to Moses to the Israelites, to the Egyptians, to Pharaoh himself, and to the entire world. I like how Calvin uh, answered this question, why. He said, he wished the work of their liberation to be conspicuous. God isn't going to just set Israel free. He's going to do it in a way that displays his almighty power even over the most powerful figures on earth. And it's very clear in our passage that it's God's instrumentality that will release Israel. God tells Moses, see what I will do to Pharaoh. It will not be a Pharaoh's choice that the Israelites will leave. Pharaoh is the ruler of the most powerful kingdom in the world at the time, yet he is going to be compelled to do something. The Egyptians considered the Pharaoh to be perfect, even to be a god. Yet his power had limitations, and even he was subject to the king, the God of heaven and earth. In some ways, the next several chapters of the book of Genesis are structured like a power struggle between God and Pharaoh and the gods he represents. Uh, uh, One of my professors in seminary used to, to explain the plagues as each specific plague was an attack on a particular Egyptian deity. Uh, So it's not just um, uh, an incidental things that are being chosen, but it's a systematic dismantling of Egypt and its gods. He's the god that has all the power. So even though it reads like a power struggle, there is no struggle. (laughs) It's God that has all the power. He's the real king. Even the way God speaks to Moses in this address is structured like a royal decree. Notice how he begins uh, in verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And then he ends this address in verse 8 with the same phrase, I am the Lord. Um, This is a typical way royal decrees in the ancient Near East would be structured. 
uh, I am Sargon, the mighty king, king of a god, or I am Azatawada, king of the Danunites. There are countless examples of royal decrees, and this is, is rhetorically structured just like one. Kings began royal decrees by stating their name and by listing their mighty deeds and punctuated their addressants with a final statement of their royal identity. They give their name at the beginning and the end as if the just stating of their name settles all questions. Who is it that commands? Or why should I do this? The king says so. End of story. Here Yahweh uses the same royal formula of address as if to say there's no other who's qualified to speak. His decrees are the only ones sure and lasting. Even though Moses has just met stiff resistance from both the people of Israel and from Pharaoh, God reminds him that his divine kingship overrules all human kings and the power of his royal decrees overrules all the vain declarations of human authority. As we enter this new year, God wants us to remember that no earthly power exists apart from God and no earthly power is too great for him. He demonstrates in this passage that only he is great and that he intends to make his great power known. This is a lesson we need to learn continuously. How often do we trifle with God and his word as if he was weak or what he said uh, hollow? Perhaps in our everyday lives, like Pharaoh, we deny the reality of God's power, practically living like atheists, only trusting in what we can accomplish by our own plans and efforts. Like Pharaoh, when faced with the clear evidence of a powerful God at work in our world, we blind ourselves into thinking that we alone can control uh, our lives, despite all the circumstances that demonstrate our powerlessness. Or maybe we're like the Israelites, who have forgotten what their God has done for them in the past. We despair in the midst of difficulties and life's current troubles because we don't remember there's a God who works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Or maybe you're like Moses. You've heard and remembered what God's word says, but you disregard it because you think so little of its power and of his ability to carry it out. How often do we make plans about how we think things should go only to despair afterwards when things don't happen the way we had planned? Don't let current events and circumstances make you forget the goodness and power of God. God will be exalted and his power will be made known. One day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is king and Lord of all. As the rest of Exodus will show, you can either bow to him in humble obedience or be bowed by him in submission. You can either acknowledge his kingship and rule or be conquered as an enemy and driven under his feet like Pharaoh. But be certain his power will be made manifest 
he will show forth his strong hand. Know that only God is great in his power. Second in our passage, we see God is great in his faithfulness. Know that only God is great in his faithfulness. In verses 2 through 5, we see God recalling his promises and his covenant which he made with the fathers of Israel. We're going to talk a lot about covenant in the coming weeks in our adult Sunday school class um, as we see uh, repeatedly how God entered into solemn oath with his people. And the history of redemption is God fulfilling his promises to his people. Here, God is saying to these people enslaved in Egypt that they will know God in even a fuller way than those patriarchs of old knew him. God made covenant promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. But Israel will see the fulfillment of those promises. The revelation of, of, this, of the self of God is the meaning of God's references to his different names. Um, they're translated for us uh, in, in the scripture, but that God Almighty is El Shaddai. So he's saying the patriarchs did not know me by my name Yahweh, uh, which appears in our text as the Lord. They didn't know me by this name, I am who am, but by El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. Moses, or God here, is using his names to show the different attributes on which those names signify. El Shaddai refers to God being the sole God, the only God of power and might, God Almighty. This God made promises to the fathers of Israel who didn't live to see the fulfillment of those pr things promised. Yahweh, I am, is the covenant and personal name of God. It's the name manifesting God's self-existent nature and indicates God's close identification with his people, his covenant love with and for them. This name is being emphasized here because God is fulfilling the promises he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What they knew of and thought of as something long and far in the future, Israel would experience firsthand through the events of the Exodus. Now the specific promise here is that God was going to give his people the land of Canaan. Notice how in verse 4 God identifies that I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. He made that promise first to Abraham, but the only land Abraham ever possessed in the land of Canaan was his grave. Verse 4 emphasizes the, this fact that the, the Israelites, that these patriarchs were sojourners. Um, it literally lead, reads, the land of their sojournings in which they sojourned. <laughs> what do you think... Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's relationship to the land was. They were sojourning in the land in which they sojourned. They believed that God would do what he say, would say, but they only knew the front end of the promises. They had the shadow. They knew God was God. They knew God was powerful. 
They knew the promises of God. But Israel was to know all of this and the fulfillment of those promises. As God declares in verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. In their lifetime, they would know truly that God is Yahweh, the covenant God who keeps his promises. The Israelites were at really their lowest point in bondage and slavery, but they were going to know God in a way, in a way that no one else had known him before. They were going to know that only God was great in his faithfulness. God's great faithfulness is also shown by his response to his people's sufferings. He had not forgotten him. He wasn't just some local deity trapped back in the land of Canaan um, who couldn't hear their cries from Egypt and had forgotten all about these people. He's not a God who ignored their suffering and pain. As verse 5 tells us, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. He was a God who knew their anguish and was prepared to act in a way that they couldn't even imagine uh, that he was going to act. Yet his actions are still based on his character and his covenant. The point here isn't that Israel was faithful or worthy or deserved this deliverance. Indeed, the previous chapter shows what Israel thought of God's sending of Moses. <laughs> They're ready to kill God's deliverers. Even when Moses tells them what God has just told him in verse 9, how does Israel respond? Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They thought little of God's promise compared to the reality of their present sufferings. They remain despondent, yet God is the one who's faithful. The final clause of verse 5, I have remembered my covenant, means that, that I have remembered, means that God is ready to put the covenant and its promises into effect. He acts not because of Israel's faithfulness, but because of his own. He remembers his promise, even if Israel has forgotten. The point is, God is great in his faithfulness. Like Israel, though, our problem so often is that we forget. We are forgetful people. I remember when uh, Dana and I lived in Durham, we had uh, friends, we were friends with a young couple from church who were always like going out. They were like the super active, newly married young couple. And every new movie, they would be at the premiere. And then they had a baby. And then this new movie came out. I can't remember which one it was. This would have been uh, early, late, yeah, early 2000s. So whatever, maybe it was one of the Lord of the Rings movies coming out that everybody was going to see then. And so they got their coats and they got their tickets and they were headed to the movies and literally had locked their front door when they remembered, oh, we have a baby. <laughs> no babysitter, no plans for the child. Uh, uh, that's how even the most precious thing uh, in our lives we can forget. Um, and we can forget uh, and, and grow discouraged 
so easily admit adverse circumstances of our lives. We forget the God who remembers. We make plans for ourselves and then despair when the least thing goes awry with what we expected to happen. We decide how others should act and thus are disappointed daily when others fail us in their words and actions. We seek comfort from our material circumstances and earthly treasures, and thus we're undone when moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. As Martin Luther said, God's ways are what he intends to do to men. What this is to be, men cannot discover by their reason, nor find out by their thoughts. Therefore, they had better not prescribe to God in their presumption and conceit what is right or wrong and how a divine act and government ought to be performed and run. You do and will fail in your relationships with others. You do and will fail in your relationship with God. But God will never fail you. His faithfulness and his covenant are sure. As the hymn proclaims, friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. God does not forget his promises, even though we so often do. The nation of Israel would know God in a fuller, fuller way than Abraham because they saw the fulfillment of his promises. How much fuller is our knowledge of God, who has eternally fulfilled his covenant promises, by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Our God kept the terms of the covenant to the point where it cost him his son. God's great faithfulness to you is shown in Jesus Christ. Know that only God is great in his faithfulness. Third and finally, we see God's greatness and the redemption of his people. Know that only God is great in his salvation. God declares in verses 6 through 8 what he is going to do. He's laying out here what's going to happen in the following chapters of the book of Exodus. And the thing that's emphasized, you'll see in verses 6 through 8, that it's God who's doing the acting. Look at all the verbs starting in verse 6. I will bring, I will deliver, I will redeem, I will take. I will be your God. The action is all God's. He's the one who will bring about the salvation of his people. He's the one who delivers them, who redeems them, who saves them. The repeated use of I emphasizes that God is the principal actor in this coming drama of redemption. It's not Aaron. It's not Moses. It's not Pharaoh or his lackeys. It's God. Only God is great in redemption. Notice second that this future deliverance is certain. In our Bible, all these verbs in verses 6 through 8 are read as future tense because they all refer to events, to things that haven't happened yet. So naturally, the will there uh, is, is, is familiar and expected for us. But in the Hebrew, the verbs are all in the perfect tense which indicates these are completed actions, even though they haven't yet taken place. <laughs> um, these events, even though they are temporally in the future, are so certain 
that God can talk about them as if they're already done. He's telling Moses that these future acts of deliverance are just as certain as events in past. When God decrees something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Notice also the purpose of God's actions in deliverance. He acts so they will know that he is Yahweh God, that they will experience relationship with the one who delivers them. I don't know if, if you're like me, um, I associate the movie Ten Commandments with Easter for whatever reason. Uh, Ten Commandments in my childhood was always shown on Eastern Sunday, even though I only ever got to see the movie up until the flood and it was my bedtime. So I never actually got to see the issuing of the Ten Commandments for which the movie bore its name. It wasn't until uh, much, much later that I saw the movie and, and was in a state of, of my life, I guess, when I finally saw the whole movie in, in one sitting all the way through, um, to realize how, how even though it displays miraculous things like some of the plagues and that, that you know, tremendous splitting of the sea and, and this bolt of lightning coming and carving out the Ten Commandments in stone, it, it really is a man-centered movie. Um, and this is captured by, uh, especially by Charlton Heston, speaking eloquently of God's wanting freedom from every man. So it's, it's all about freedom from slavery. And yes, God certainly wants freedom for his people. He wants them to be liberated from the bonds of Egypt. But the liberation from slavery in the Exodus is the means, not the end, of God's purpose. Notice the real reason for God's deliverance stated in verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. It's the means. The end is of this exodus, of this deliverance, of this momentous events that are unfolded in the rest of the book is for them to know their God. The good news isn't just deliverance from slavery, it's the restoration of a right relationship in which the freed now enter into with their Savior. The word know there conveys not just merely intellectual assent, but it conveys intimacy, personal knowledge of one person by another person. The real point of the Exodus is not merely the deliverance from physical slavery, but to show the glory of God who brings freedom from material and spiritual chains and who creates a people for himself. It's about that relationship. Again, it's so easy for us to follow into the trap of self-centeredness to isolate ourselves, either to be undone by our personal circumstances or to think we're special um, because we're Christians. Um, how many times have you looked at so many phrases in scriptures like God loved us and you put the emphasis on us <laughs> rather than the God who's doing the, the loving? We think we deserve to be saved because we are so holy or pious. Or we think that we deserve better circumstances than those we are currently experiencing. 
We think more of our own goodness than on the goodness of God. But redemption demonstrates God's power, not ours. He's the one whose actions secure deliverance for you. It's God's glory and greatness that's displayed in the cross of Christ. If you would seek to live lives reflecting the greatness of God's salvation, there's no better place to start than with the answer to question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Redemption shows God to be great, not us. The purpose of salvation in all things is to give glory and honor to the God who truly deserves it. As the Puritan preacher George Swinnick well said, God who discovered great power in creating the world of nothing discovered much greater power in redeeming the world when it was worse than nothing. Know that only God is great in redemption. If the exodus of God's people from captivity shows forth the glory and greatness of God, how much more does God's delivering of his people from their bondage and slavery to sin demonstrate his majesty? Until God demonstrates his greatness in redemption, we are under the cruel reign of sin and death, enchained by our own iniquity and brokenness. We are in a helpless and miserable place. Without hope of salvation or deliverance from our pain and suffering, we're just like Moses and the people of Israel at the end of chapter 5. And we stay in that place until God shows forth his great salvation in Jesus Christ. Through his death and resurrection, Christ conquered sin and death, and they now lay crushed at his feet. Our great covenant God has given us the promised redemption through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the embodied fulfillment of all God's covenant promises. Though we cannot save ourselves, Jesus Christ has given us redemption, deliverance, freedom from eternal death and hell so that we could have eternal fellowship with him in heaven. He's great in his power. He's great in his faithfulness. He is great in redemption. If you do not know the glory and greatness of God, I invite you to find it this day in Jesus Christ. He's the only one who has the power to crush those who would see you spend an eternity in hell. He's the only one who has the power to fulfill his promise to you of life. He's the only one through whom redemption can be found. As we enter this new year full of hopeful expectations and fears of the unknown, the true certainties that you need to cling to is that God alone is great in his power. God alone is great in his faithfulness. And God alone is great in his salvation. Know that God only is great. Let's pray.